on May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Warning. This bonus episode of X-Ray Vision contains spoilers for Thor Love and Thunder. Don't listen to it unless you've seen that movie. Goodbye. Jason welcome to X-Ray Vision, the Crooked Podcast, where we dive deep into your favorite shows, movies, comics, and pop culture. In this bonus episode, we're going to answer some questions that you sent us about Thor, Love, and Thunder, and then we will clear the lane so that comics legend, Thor writer, Thor god of thunder writer, major influence on Thor, Love, and Thunder person, Jason Aaron, can be interviewed by us, and you can hear him talk about uh, just how he uh, created one of the great comic arcs of our time. Mm -hmm. Truly. Uh, Next up, questions. First question from Kate. What's Arisham up to? Rosie, what's Arisham up to, you think? (laughs) Well, this is uh, going back to my favorite topic, of course, Eternals. Erishim, of course, the celestial who was kind of pulling the strings. Yeah, behind and the doing scenes. some judgment at the end. He's yeah. like, come on, I'm just judging you for killing another birthing celestial. You know, I like the casual nature of this question. Like, what's he up to? What's that co- yeah. casual god up to? Um, well, we saw a couple of celestials in Thor Love and Thunder, which is what I'm right. sure inspired this question. They were peering through Omnipotent City. We saw a, a statue of Arishem in the Hall of Eternity, which got smashed. I would assume Arisham is somewhere planning on how to... He's watching Earth, seeing if Earth is worthy of existing and planning his judgment, whatever that may be. And I think like, you, lo- yeah, you you brought up something really good in the in a, 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 the, our last episode, our Thor, Love and Thunder episode about how the Celestials could become part of like Zeus's God war against the superheroes. So I think there's many things that he's cooking up. Well, a couple of things I wonder vis-a-vis Erishem and the Celestials. One, um, uh, we were introduced to the concept during uh, the previous phases of the MCU that the Infinity Stones were created basically as a weapon against the Celestials. So I wonder how the Celestials feel <laughs> or have they talked about the fact that nothing can hold them in check anymore? Mm-hmm. Like that massive i'm sure we'll come up with something else but that massive weapon that worked once upon a time is just like off the table for them and i wonder if they've thought about it and then two you know uh, you mentioned your your favorite movie the eternals it's growing on me as well actually but the end of that movie uh we saw that there is a, there ended up being a huge celestial carcass in the pacific ocean Uh, And we expect at some point when they put the Avengers back together that that will be the headquarters of the Avengers. But 
I wonder, like, is it a tourist attraction? Like, what's going right? on with the carcass right now? Is anyone has anyone noticed it? Is it something? Yeah. Is it being worshipped? Is it being ignored? Has the government tried to move it? I think we would all like to know about the the cool marbleized celestial. Also, like something I really want to know is when the Avengers inevitably do move in there and make it the headquarters. How Arish am going to be feeling about that? I feel like it's going to be mad disrespectful. It's like, not only did you kill this celestial, but now you're just living in its body. I know. <laughs> Next question. Spotty Floppy asks, can we expect Thor and Loki to reunite again considering how different their stories are? Well, in the comics, Loki has died a lot of times. <laughs> <laughs> so Loki's taken off the board. Many, many times and replaced with younger versions of himself or different versions like the, uh, versions of himself that seem to suggest and set up the fact that we can get a Loki and and potentially not a Loki played by Tom Hiddleston mm. again in the future. Like that's that's absolutely on the table that we either get a young Loki or or a female Loki. Um, that can happen. I think that that can definitely happen. What do you think? Yeah, I think so, too. And I think that this is one of the most asked questions because that relationship means so much to people in the MCU and in the comics, but especially in the MCU. So I definitely think, I think we'll get at least one more Hemsworth-Hiddleston reunion, even if it's just like fleeting, like on the Bifrost or something. But yeah. I also think you're right. Like Kid Loki in the event in Young yep. Avengers, very likely we already met him in the series, spoiler alert. And I definitely think Sofia DiMantino's version of Loki is also probably going to continue in the MCU too. So yeah, at some point, you know, could see Jane Foster, Mighty Thor, and Sofia DiMartino Loki. You never know. There, you know, there's there's some there's some Thor reuniting that could happen in different ways. That would be extremely exciting. Um, uh, KGP asks what happens next with Thor. Uh, gosh, my guess is if they're going Secret Wars, that it's going to be some, mm -hmm. it's going to be a big Secret Wars thing. I think so. Like, we've been talking about this a lot where basically this phase of the MCU, though, it hasn't necessarily always been clear directly where it's going or what connects it. The one thing that it has had is pretty much... 90% of the shows have introduced, or movies, Shang-Chi introduced Talo, secret society where they have a special way of fighting that can harness supernatural stuff. Uh, Miss Marvel introduced the Noor and the clandestine secret world that is on yeah. Earth. In comics, as me and Jason have talked about a lot, uh, Secret Wars includes a thing, Battle Worlds, where all these dimensions come together on one Earth. It seems like they're establishing something like that. And I think Omnipotent City is another example of a secret society like Wakanda, like uh, Karmataj, that could become a part of this global battle in Secret Wars. But you also did mention something that I think a lot of people are thinking after the stinger in Thor, Love and Thunder, which was um, War of the Realms as a potential. So in War of the Realms, um, well, who would they, gosh, who would they get to be the bad guy. I wonder if they just replace Malekith unless they want to bring him back, baby. <laughs> Re right. so, in, so in War of the Realms in the comics, which is a great, great crossover, super fun crossover in which Malekith, you know, uh, King of the Dark Elves, <laughs> enters into an alliance with Roxxon. <laughs> evil. The oil company, the evil oil company, uh, to help conquer um, some of the other realms 
in return for access to Roxxon to like unimpeded mining yeah. and resource extraction from various and realms. Absolutely shocking. No one. It basically destroys every realm. That's essentially yes. like that's the kind of and and then you end up in a situation where Midgard or Earth is the only realm. I think it would actually be very easy. I mean, we did see Roxxon in like a funny Walmart reimagining like Easter egg in in Loki, but I do think yeah. it would be really easy to just have Hercules instead of being instead of Malekith being the puppet master of that, where he just wants to control every realm. He wants people to bow down to him, and he will put in an alliance with whomever to do so. And that would also be a reason why Hercules could turn his back on his father and and team up with the heroes, as we know he's more than likely going to do. Here's my pitch. Um, so Kevin Feige, slightly. listen. Hi, Jason. Are you listening? Are you listening? So I, I love the Hercules angle. I think Hercules, we understand that he's got to break good at some point. Mm-hmm. And what we know about Hercules, they might change it up, but what we know about Hercules from the comics is super, super strong, really great guy, not the sharpest. No, he's a, he's, he's Marvel's <laughs> he's, a, he's a he's a he's a dummy. He loves to get drunk, and he does not hold his liquor as well as some of the other heavy heavy drinkers in the MCU. Notably Thor, notably Logan, notably others. Every Asgardian. I mean, Hercules just gets after it and gets <laughs> fucked up. Now, what if it's this? What if Dario Agger? <gasps> CEO of Roxxon. Who we thought would might maybe be a bad <laughs> right. guy in, in Love and Thunder. We did think that, who also in the comics sold his soul uh, in order to become the literal Minotaur. Literal right? Minotaur. Now we have the oh. Grease, now we have the Grease oh connection. Oh my God, Hercules right? and the Minotaur. So, You're really getting into some good deep stuff here. So Agar tricks Hercules. He's like, hey, I'll help you. We'll get back at Thor. Let's do this. Let's invade the realms and we'll fuck Thor up when really what Agar wants is Hercules to take Thor out so he can, as the head of Roxxon, can just extract all the natural resources wow. from Vanaheim or wherever. What if it's Dude, that? that is like literally a perfect <laughs> pitch and I swear to God, I hope Marvel is listening because that is one of the best pitches. Also, let's put that X-ray vision oracle, tinfoil hat, it's happening. <laughs> yeah, that could be the thing. I think that's a great version, especially because the space where Thor is at right now is a space where he has something to live for. He loves his family. Yeah. He wants to protect the universe. He wants to protect the realms. And so that gives it even more heart to bring this kind of ecological analogous story about this evil corporation. I think that would be so good. I'll say something else, man. It if I'm an actor out there, Dario Agard theoretically is one of the meatiest roles yeah, you can get in I the I think MCU. that's why people, that's He's who a, everyone assumed Christian Bell was going to play. Because you're like, if you can get him to come back, what is it for? And obviously it was gore, but Dario is so meaty. There's so much there. He's so meaty. It's like if, uh, it, it's like if a character from the Wolf of Wall Street mm-hmm, was mm-hmm. also a super villain who turned into a huge, like, bipedal, super strong bull. <laughs> from the, you know, it, it's, a, it's like a great, it would be 
a really, really great role. Yeah. Uh, you know, I could just see whoever this character is, you know, they're having a meeting of the of the shareholders and they're laying into Daru Agar. Why are we losing this? Why are we losing? We just yeah. did a massive oil spill over in the government. And then he just turns into a minute. Dude, I love that. Who, people out the window. Who would be your dream Dario Agar casting? If you got your pitch accepted and they were like, Jason, oh put God. together the pitch Bible. Who's the dream? You go first. I need to think about it. I need to okay, think about okay. it first. So cool. You know what? I would go. I'm like, if you're going... Who would be? I feel like you know Miles Teller could do like a very intense. <laughs> That's actually a great one, <laughs> right? That's actually bring really it. really good. He could, he could bring that that you know aggression from the film that made him, and then kind of bring that charm from the newest stuff. And 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 I feel like I could see him becoming the Minotaur. I feel like he's got the the vibes. I think Kieran Kieran Culkin, <gasps> like because there's a oh. good uh, there's something really cool like about a kind of slightly dickish but unassuming okay. physically human person who turns into this monstrous minotaur that all of a sudden is incredibly smart and also incredibly likely because it hits on one of the things i think marvel does that is so interesting and that really sets it apart and also makes fan casting very fun for us they love to cast someone who has already kind of done the thing that they want them to do yeah. so they cast kit harrington most famous from Game of Thrones, and they cast him as Black Knight. They cast him as a medieval-inspired hero. Cersei, Gemma Chan, had been in this really incredible show where she played like a robot who was gaining sentience and freedom from the people who created her, very similar to the journey in Eternals. They've often done that. Uh, I mean, Fox... The Marvel side of Fox did it too with casting, you know, Sansa Stark as Jean Grey. Like, I, I feel like Kieran Culkin, they would... If they don't, if they could do Dario Aga and they don't <laughs> cast someone from Succession, that would be a miss. Like that is Kevin Feige, the crossover. Us. Kevin Feige, give X Ray Vision a call. We'll consult for you. War of the Realms, call us. <laughs> it would be great. Uh, Kate, why didn't Moon Knight show up when gods are hissing? Is a great question. Well, first of all, he's merely an avatar of the mm -hmm. gods. The real question is why weren't any of the Egyptian gods? Maybe yes. they were. I haven't. We need to do a real like granular scan of the omnipotent city hall scene. So we don't quite know um, that they weren't there, but I... It, it did feel Moon strange that it, there wasn't a more prominent... They, the, the, the gods that they, cre they credited were quite vague, and, and it will yeah. be really fun when it's on Disney Plus to go through and do that granular look. But it did feel... As gods are becoming this really important part of the MCU, I was definitely also surprised that there wasn't necessarily an obvious character from the Ianad that we'd met in Moon Knight. You would have thought we would have seen Khonshu there. Now, again, maybe <laughs> That would have been so there. funny, like in this really outrageous, like, orgy-having place, and you just got cranky <laughs> old F. Murray Abram Khonshu. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then finally, Koki, 1984. Is it a crime that we didn't get a separate Valkyrie and Jane Foster buddy movie? There's still time. I know. I'm like, I mean, neither of these characters are going away. Because I want that. The, the, I am absolutely sure that Jane is coming back yeah. in some form or fashion. War of the Realms like, would also connect with that because that was had a storyline about her being in Valhalla, choosing to come back, and then obviously later on becoming a Valkyrie. But I this I agree with 100% because to me, those... I. I really, as you know, if you listen to the podcast, I love Thor, Love and Thunder, but like yeah. the moments that I think really sung to me that I would have loved to see expanded on were those moments with Jane and Val. Like when King Val goes and finds Jane and Jane's broken the 
the sink a la Wolverine in the much beloved movie Wolverine Origins. <laughs> um, you know, that moment between them where they have, you know, are you packed? And they both have their weapons and they have the little kind of the thing playing uh, Mary J. Blige. And I just think I would love to see a whole movie of that. I think we could still see it. If I was going to pitch it, it would be like a cosmic road trip. I want the cosmic buddy movie. Maybe they're both Valkyries. Maybe they're rounding up other Valkyries. Maybe they're just going on a fun trip. Doesn't have to be anything to do with trauma or action. And they're just like going to buy Thor a birthday present and they want to get him like the funniest birthday present in the universe. Like, give me that movie. I I would say it's a crime if it doesn't happen. But as Jason said, still lots of time. I have one more add on for uh, for what we see next. What happens next with Thor? And I but I would extend this to like all of Marvel. Now, of course, we're waiting for that kind of like unifying force to really kick in. And Kevin Feige announced that they had a creative council meeting uh, mm-hmm. about a month back now. So I'd assume they're they're working on that, too. But like at some point, you know, as we have just seen damage control as a kind of like human reactionary force to the sudden expansion of of the the population of enhanced people in the MCU, bad guys win. Like at some point, mm-hmm. a dark rain kind of situation where, you know, the governments of the world are like enough with these superpowered people, like either Sokovia style sign the shit or we're coming after you. And then we get like siege. Yeah. Whoever whoever takes control of the military slash government in the U.S. or in the world is like, okay, let's get Asgard out of Earth. They can go. They have like there's seven other realms like they don't need to be on this one. (laughs) Yeah. And I also think something really smart about that is like, look, I know that the way that they did it and have been the trend. Eight other realms. Yeah. The trend of the MCU so far has been this notion of you open a multiverse, you close it. It's a closed loop, right? But let's be real. A a version of Norman Osborn, the king of Marvel supervillains, has been to Earth 616, knows that who its Spider-Man is, knows the notion of the 616. I just think we shouldn't count out seeing those kind of things, Siege, Dark Reign, and maybe even seeing the MCU's version of of some of those more iconic characters that we've already seen in the in the Spider-Verse, but reimagined in new ways. I, I completely agree. That would be so awesome. And you know what is awesome? Our interview with Jason Aaron. Now, quick note, this was recorded before the release of Thor Love and Thunder, about a week before. Um, so we had no idea what the movie would contain uh, before we talked to him. Please enjoy our interview with the great Jason Aaron. On May 10th, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. I stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters May 10th. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Jason Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Um, how, what was your what's your comics origin story? How did you decide to be a writer, and then how did you how did you start 
first thinking about becoming a, a comic book writer? Well, I mean, I, you know, I think my origin story as a comic book reader in, involved uh, the spinner rack, you know, spinner rack at the local drugstore yeah. and mm-hmm. and tagging along with my mom every time she'd, she'd go, you know, to the grocery store or wherever and finding uh, new teen titans and Atari force yeah. and blue devil and uh, long shot. Like those are some of the books that I'd noticed oh, for wow. the first time that sort of pulled me in. And I just, I've never stopped reading comics, you know? Um, I mean, I was 15 or 16 before I discovered a comic book store. Cause I grew up in a small town, but once I did, I've, I've had a pull list one place or another, you know, every <laughs> year since then. So I've, I've kind of always, been reading and knew pretty quick that I, you know, I, I that's what I wanted to do. Um, I, I love to write. And then I remember telling my parents when I was a kid that, you know, yeah, I, I want to write comics someday. Had absolutely no idea how you begin to even <laughs> attempt to do that, especially for kid growing up in, you know, it's little town and, and backwoods Alabama. Um, so it took until I was I was almost 30. I was in my late 20s, and I won a Marvel Comics talent search contest, um, which was this weird thing that Marvel <laughs> had never really done before in that way, and they and mm-hmm. they haven't done it since. So it was this kind of strange one-time thing. I, you know, I sort of lucked into, I guess, and I haven't looked back. Yeah, I was gonna say it's actually like really rare to find someone who did any kind of comics talent search and then ended up getting a career kind of consistently writing comics. And that first story, that was a Wolverine story, right? Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Yeah. And uh, what was that like for you to, you know, growing up on those spinner racks, reading those comics, and then kind of just writing this short Wolverine story and it being published in a comic shop that you could get from a comic book store? I mean, it was it's surre- it was surreal. I think it's still surreal. I think that the weirdness has never worn off, you know? Um, I mean, I... Like I said, I knew pretty much my whole life I wanted to be a writer. I kind of pursued that in different ways. You know, I thought, well, maybe I'll go into journalism. And I took like two semesters of journalism in college and realized that wasn't for me. And I, I was writing a bunch of terrible novels that hopefully no one will <laughs> will ever get to read. And going, you know, just anything I could do to write, you know, it was just consumed so much of my time, um, which was really like the most important thing I did, you know, through those, mm-hmm. even though I don't really have anything to show for it um, in, in terms of like published work. Uh, it was still th- all that time I spent writing was kind of getting me ready for when the opportunity would arise. Mm-hmm. And then getting this, you know, this weird random talent search popped up. So it's like, I got lucky, but I'd kind of made my own luck. And then I felt like I was ready by that point to, to do something interesting. And thankfully, you know, caught the attention. It was editor Mike Martz, who was the X-Men editor at the time. He, I was working like a crappy job at a video rental store back when they still had those, you know, (laughs) and I had a, I had a message on my answering machine, this or on my cell phone. This was like months after the the contest It's several months after I'd, you know, just dropped this pay, this piece of paper in a box. And there was a message on my phone, just, Hey, this is Mike Martz of Marvel. Give me a call back. And literally my first thought was like, man, that's really cruel of the guy to call me just to tell me I did not win. Like, why would he do that? <laughs> what a terrible guy. But um, tur- turns out I, I did win. So, yeah. Would uh, How did you 
summer when I first started writing, just the simple things like trying to figure out like what a f- script format looked like, like what all <laughs> the stuff is supposed to look like was. How did you figure all that out at the time? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't really have any idea of that either. I, and back in those days, I don't think you could really find examples yeah, there's no way to find out yeah yeah it was just the watchman the back matter of watchman alan moore's <laughs> dead <That's> right. script. <laughs> which i everyone's yeah. writing one page panel descriptions <laughs> which i absolutely did you're, you're absolutely right because <laughs> i had that i've got that that big hardcover edition too that's got that script in there and i, I like i had found at some point years ago i found this what was the first comic script i ever wrote back when i was in high school and it is absolutely me trying to do this incredibly long, <laughs> incredibly detailed letter to the to the artists, you know, like Alan Moore's scripts were. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then eventually find out, well, really nobody else writes comic scripts quite like that. <laughs> but that's the thing. There's no kind of standard format. I think if you, you know, I like collecting scripts from from other artists who who you know, whose stuff I like, and they're everybody kind of does it differently. You know, I mean, some people use mm-hmm. like standard screenwriting format at this point but um i've I've never really done that so yeah but back in the day i had no idea so that was very much um you know relying on my editors and mike martz for that initial wolverine story and then i started doing stuff after that at vertigo and will dennis was a big help and just showing me you know here's here's how people who are really good at this do it and being able to to try to copy that i guess yeah, what was, I mean, like, what were those notes? Like, Mike Marks obviously saw your storytelling kind of instincts and, and drew them. What was his, was his notes, like, the script is a mess? Or was he like, this is quite good? Because like you said, I've read hundreds of comic book scripts and every single one is different. And some make a lot of sense and some make no sense. <laughs> I mean, I think I, I think I, he told me I won the contest just because my idea was different and kind of stood out. That mm. mine wasn't mm. set in a bar it didn't have Wolverine mm-hmm. fighting <laughs> ninjas. Um, I was I was trying to do like a weird take on a Flannery O'Connor story where Wolverine, you know, encounters this this woman on a, on a dirt road winding through the woods, and they have a conversation about faith, you know, before mm-hmm. things take a take a turn south. But so I think it was just kind of something different. It was mine was a little more mm-hmm. character driven. Um, but yeah, in terms of the actual scripting process, I mean, I, I think it's all kind of a blur, you know, it was just, I think it's 10 pages, eight, 10 pages, something like mm-hmm. that. So we're talking pretty short story, but I, I, I remember Mike sending me, you know, examples of, of, of different scripts to kind of, to kind of go off of just cause I had no clue really. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Vertigo, uh, you would go there and, uh, release a, a five issue, uh, war comic, uh, the other side. What inspired that, um, and what what was that process like? Pitching that idea, getting that made. Well, I, the uh, my cousin was uh, Gus Hasford. He was a Vietnam vet and a novelist, mm-hmm. and he wrote a book called The Short Timers, which is what Stanley Kubrick's mm-hmm. Full Metal Jacket was largely based on. Mm-hmm. So, I'd, Gus was a big influence on me, and in that he was, you know, my cousin. He was from the same neck of the woods. He was first person i ever met who made a living writing he was very strange eccentric guy spent time in jail for stealing hundreds of library books um (laughs) and then you know he 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 died too young he he, um uh, died like in the 90s and 
in a, like a flop house motel in Greece. Um, so I never really wow. got to talk to him much about, you know, writing once I was kind of mm. old enough to, to have something to say about it. So I just spent a lot of time researching his life and through that um, met a lot of his, his um, fellow Marine combat correspondents from, from his era and got to hang out with some of those guys. And so I think all of that led me to want to do a Vietnam war book. And I initially pitched it to Marvel as a relaunch of the NOM, you know, that, that oh, wow. 80s, great ah, 80s yeah, series. Yeah. Um, and uh, didn't get picked up there and just kind of pitched it around to, to different people. And Will Dennis I, at Vertigo, I focused in on because he edited a lot of the, the books that I really enjoyed reading. And then he also had edited the only, you know, war comics really anybody had done in years, which were those Garth Ennis war mm-hmm. stories. So yep. I sent it to him and he turned me down like a couple of times. Uh, but I was, I was politely persistent, which I think is another important key to break it in. <laughs> not, you know, yeah. not like being a bother or pain in the butt, but like be persistent, just be polite. Uh, be respectful of editor's time. So I sent him the script. I had written the first issue script and said, Hey, would you, you know, take a look at it at least and let me know what you think. And he said, sure. Told me again, you know, I, I still can't use it, but I'll take a look at it. And then he read it and, and, you know, liked it and, and got greenlit it at Vertigo. So I think <laughs> I've never worked harder in my life on a comic script than that one. The first, cause that was the first full, you know, then 22 mm-hmm. page script I'd ever written, which I worked on probably for months. Um, so it, it, it was still probably the lowest selling book I've ever written. You know, it was the very <laughs> first one, but it was the most important one, I think, because, you know, it sort of paved the way for everything I've done since then. Mm-hmm. And what was it like to go from like this kind of personal, heavily researched comic to then like returning back to Marvel and going back into that pantheon of kind of these huge iconic kind of godlike figures. I mean, it, it was great. I mean, in my mind, that's kind of always what I've wanted to do. Um, mm. I mean, I, I love superhero comics. I grew up reading Marvel and DC superhero comics. I still read a bunch of them. Um, I'm, it's not like I'm doing that just because, you know, it's a job or that's what you need to do. Like I, I genuinely enjoy doing that stuff, but at the same time, I wouldn't, I, I never want to do just work for hire stuff, just superhero stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm always attracted to other genres. So kind of right from the get go in terms of my career, I was doing, you know, creator own stuff, uh, balancing with um, the Marvel and DC stuff. What, at what point? So uh you win this contest, uh, you're getting stuff made. At what point were you able to pursue comics writing as your full-time job? Quit the job at the video store, put all that stuff away, explain to people, I am a comics writer now, and then just do that. Well, basically, um, my son just turned 17, like like two weeks ago. He's he's the same age as my comic career because I quit my job when he was born, <laughs> um, and it was right around the time I was working on Scalped Number One, the beginning of Scalped, because my son's name is Dashel, just like the main character of Scalped. So, um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's about seven seventeen years now. I guess I've been I've been full time. 
Wow. And what is that kind of, people talk a lot about like, do the thing that you love and you will never get tired of it. And then when we do the thing we love, we're also like, also you will burn out on the thing <laughs> that you love. What's what's that journey been like for you? Because you've been a professional comics writer almost as long as you were just a fan, you know? So like, what what has that journey been like for you of doing it full time and doing create your own books that people have loved and, and always coming back to those superheroes too. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it's definitely a, a journey. Um, I think you can look at it in terms of different acts to my career, which some of which may be obvious from people who've been reading along the way. Some of them are maybe more personal and not as obvious. So they're definitely, it's definitely been, you know, a series of changes, even though for the most part um, I've been at Marvel you know, I think I've been exclusive mm-hmm. uh, to Marvel since I want to say 2008 or so. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, even within that, I you know, I spent like six years, six, seven years writing Wolverine stories. I spent seven years writing Thor stories uh, since then I've been doing Avengers. So it's still I've changed over the course of that. My work's changed. Um, the company's changed a lot. And mm-hmm. I. And, you know, things are still changing for me um, as they are for most everybody after the last couple of years, right? So I think this next year for me will be another one of e- of even bigger changes. So, um, but I think all that's good. I mean, from granted, not all of those changes have been good. Certainly the, <laughs> the ones we've all been dealing with lately have not been, but um, I think it's good and that it just... I don't ever want to get stagnant or bored or just feel like I'm mm-hmm. punching mm-hmm. a clock and, and doing this just to pay my bills. Um, I, I think as a creator, you always want to feel like you're challenging yourself and doing something that's different than stuff you've done before. So I've, you know, I've, I'm very happy and fortunate that I feel like I've been able to do that. I haven't spent my time doing jobs that were forced upon me. That I that mm-hmm. you know were somebody else's ideas or things that I didn't want to do. Um, so it, it, it it's been a it's definitely been a journey, um, but but been a fun one. And I think you do have to be conscious of not getting burned out. To me, the only thing I think is just the grind of doing ongoing books. I mm-hmm. think I'm you know maybe interested in kind of jumping off that train at some point um, mm. and doing more stuff kind of like what I'm doing with Punisher mm-hmm. right now, where it's just sort of, you know, set number of issues, set artist. Mm-hmm. Uh, just cause I think that can get to be a, a bit of a grind when you're having to write for, a, you know, many different artists at the same time. Let's um, you mentioned Thor uh, and uh, we'd be remiss if we, it did not talk about your run on Thor beginning with uh, God of Thunder in 2012 course, it's being adapted um, for the upcoming Thor Love and Thunder movie. Um, in our opinion, we read a lot of comics. It's, you know, simply one of the best runs ever. Yeah, we, we talk about in it comics. <laughs> like it's, it's And some it's of the a, best, you got to work with some of the best artists too. And some of the greatest, runs. you know, right. from uh, Isad Ribich to Russ Downerman, on and on. Did you know, like at what point uh, in the run, did you did you ever realize like oh wow this is this is really good we're we're like really do, we're really doing something cool. 
I mean, I don't remember thinking, hey, this is going to be really big or I'll, you know. I mean, I I feel like at this point, if I, when I die, Thor is going to be mentioned in like the first paragraph of my (laughs) obituary, right? Like, I feel like I'm pretty firmly established as Thor writer forever. Um, But no, I, I never stop and think about that along the way. It's just sort of the next thing and it's the thing I'm excited to do and. Um, it was it's a matter of good timing and that Thor was not really a character I had mm-hmm. been long interested in, but that moment in time, it struck me to where I was, yeah, I think I really want to do Thor. And, and yeah, I got to work with an incredible lineup of, of artists, very, very lucky over the series of, of people I got to work with. I, I think for me, the biggest thing was I'd been at Marvel long enough at that point, you know, I'd been writing Wolverine next stuff for yeah. so long and felt kind of comfortable with my position in the company with my relationships with everybody that I kind of had the confidence to sort of say okay I'm taking over Thor and I'm going to stay here as long as it takes me to kind of see all this through because I knew I was kind of laying mm. tracks that like this is going to take a while you know like this is going to take years for me to yeah. pay all this off and I kind of just said like I'm going to stay on here until you know you guys fire me or take me off or I'm done (laughs) one or the other and kind of felt again, felt confident enough to say like, I feel like I can just do that. Right. Yeah. Mm. Um, And thankfully, you know, I didn't get fired along the way and I got to finish the story uh, the way I wanted to. Yeah. One of my favorite things about that run from Thor to mighty Thorn on is how, uh, you know, each different arc in the run elevated it and changed what was happening, added new emotional layers, added new canonical layers even, uh, never played it safe, was always uh, fantastically creative. How much of that was, uh, you mentioned the track, how much of that was laid out at the beginning? Um, obviously, there's a bunch of different uh, uh uh, you know, crossover events that intersected with with these stories and a bunch of different things, you know, different directions that the company was going on editorially over this run. Um, so how much of that were you able to kind of lay out at the beginning? I mean, a, a lot of it. Like I had a big plan for sort of um, a, a lot of different stories, pretty much all of which I ended up doing. It's just as the kind of once I got to the the idea of the Jane Foster story, Mm-hmm. Um, very much changed the order of things. So some of the stories that originally were going to be Thor Odinson stories became Jane Foster stories and things got moved around. Um, so I, I think the Jane part of it definitely shifted things around in part because I was so, like I enjoyed that story so much. Like I mm-hmm. yeah. kind of, you know, I think I did realize you're talking about in terms of realizing like the, what we were doing. I realized in the midst of that Jane Foster story, I'm really, really happy and really, really proud of this. There's a lot of meat mm-hmm. on these bones, you know, yeah. uh, just emotionally. Like I knew this is something, not just it's fun to watch her go around and punch Odin in the face and do all this big stuff. Like that's cool. But I realized this is a very potential, if we do it right, to be a very powerful emotional story. Um, and I feel like we did that. I feel like it was 
first and foremost, because it was for all of us involved in making it, you know, I mean, I cried mm-hmm. writing issues and Russell cried drawing them and our editors cried when the pages oh, came in. We'd, we, yeah. we'd all cry and I'll do still do signings, you know, where people bring up Thor comics and start crying and everybody's crying. Mm-hmm. And so I've never, I've done stories that have affected people and done other yeah. stories I'm, I'm really proud of. And then I think all the parts came together in the right yeah. way, but that Jane Foster story in particular, I think, is a, a bit of a cut of a, a cut above, especially the other Marvel stuff I've done in terms of the um, impact not, it's had on people. Yeah, not to spoil uh, anything for our the listeners who maybe haven't gotten that far, but the 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 exact page where I was like, "Wow, this is emotionally." surprising and hitting me in ways that I was not ready for is uh, um, Jane's in the in in the hospital and uh, Volstag is there asleep in a chair like in her <laughs> with like a with like a bag of chips on his uh, <laughs> on his lap and uh, you know it's a really simple scene obviously contrasted with uh, with um, the kind of more um, godlike adventures that Jane is having, and it's so grounded, and it's so grounded in the friendship, really surprising friendship between uh, Volsag and Jane, and it was, uh, it was just amazing. It was just ama- an amazing scene. I love quiet scenes like that as a longtime comics yeah. reader, and it was that was a moment where I was like, wow, this is this is really good. This is special. Thanks. Yeah. I, I worked in a comic shop actually in London when that was coming out and it was it was one of those books where you could just feel it. Like everyone was so excited when it came in and, and when that first issue of Mighty Thor with Jane on the cover and everything, it was just like it was the book and and it definitely had that kind of emotional depth that the best stories that make us fall in love with comics do like me and Jason talk a lot about the 80s X-Men stuff like the Claremont stuff that was a lot of what kind of made us fall in love with comics and I feel like those quiet moments and that emotion and the kind of impact of that story which is obviously now still being felt like years later um it really comes through in that way and so like this is the tough situation in the work for hire business what is what's it like for you when you then see Natalie Portman get on stage with Taika Waititi and hold up the hammer and you know that she's going to be Jane. And then what does it feel like a year and a half later when you're seeing her on screen in this story, that this film that is obviously so inspired by the story that you guys created? Yeah, I mean, I can say my experience has been good and exciting that entire time from, like you said, from when I first, first found out, oh, they're going to do Jane's story to... Oh, you know, Gore the God Butcher is going to be in it, and <laughs> and I got to be, you know, more involved in this project than than kind of anything else before with Marvel Studios. So oh, that was nice too great. to kind of be in the loop and and have my opinion sought out. I appreciated that. Um, so yeah, it's I I can say it's been a it's been a fun experience the whole way. It still is, you know, I. I'm still going to Target and buying Jane Foster toys as they pop up on the shelves. <laughs> my, the dream. Yes, my guest bedroom is full of uh of, you know, Jane Foster stuff. So I'm I'm still having fun and I'm I'm, you know, anxious and excited for people to to see the finished product and, and to see what uh what Taika and everybody involved has, has done with it. 
how does um what's the workflow like with um obviously would change from team to team, artist to artist, but generally speaking, you know, you're doing a book with with Russell or Isad or whoever. Um how 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 do you work out the the mix of of script and art? I mean, to me it's usually the same regardless of who I'm working with. I I mean, I remember very early in my career, I think I was doing a, a Wolverine story with Howard Chaikin, you know, and I'd been reading Howard Chaikin comics since I was a yeah. kid, and I was very intimidated at the idea of working with him. So I thought, well, I'm going to pull out all my old American flag comics and reread them and try to write a script just for Howard Chaikin. And then I realized, I don't know how to do that. I can't do that. Like, I can't. I just have <laughs> to write the script the way I write it, which is generally, I'm, you know, I'm not writing those like five page panel descriptions, like at the, in the Alan Moore Watchman script. I'm not I, in my mind, my job is just to kind of give the, the, the artist enough of a springboard and then get out of the way and let them do what, what they do. So that's generally what I do regardless of who I'm working with. I think the few exceptions are there are times I've worked with somebody like Chris Bacciolo where it would mm-hmm. develop into more like a, some version of a Marvel style approach, like mm. which was generally just because I would I wrote a full script for him and he would change it so radically it didn't make sense for me to to do that. <laughs> so you were like, hey, yeah, right. It's like get out of the way and let because you know I would never have the guts to write a sixteen panel page for anybody, even Chris Pachalo. <laughs> yeah. But he would he would break them down that way himself. So I thought mm. it's like, well, why don't we just let him do that? So I would. Uh, and, and I think I've done that with Adam Kubert, just a couple of guys who want to do that. Mm. Not all art, artists, you know, want that responsibility of sort of breaking everything down themselves, but some do. But beyond that, you know, I just feel like uh, I, it's it's not my job to tell Russell or Esad or anybody like how to draw. They know how to do that. I don't. I just need to give yeah. them some <laughs> some cool ideas, give them the emotion that's necessary in this in this panel and this beat, and then just get out of the way and and let them let them draw beautiful pictures. And um, so you've written like so many incredible characters at this point, like your Black Panther, uh, see Wakanda and die. That's like one of my favorite comics uh, ever. Uh, yeah, it's such a rad take on kind of scrolls and the secret invasion stuff. Is there is there any characters that you still just really really want to write that you have that kind of dream? That's the the pedestal character that you keep in your pocket. I mean, you know, I've I've never walked through my career with like a long list of, you know, oh, I really want to write this guy. I want to write that guy. Um, I realized pretty quickly that the more important part was kind of. The, the real life people involved in my relationships with the mm. editors and who's going to draw it and really kind of what felt right for me at that moment in time, as opposed to, you know, a character that I grew up reading and loving as a kid. Um, so that's kind of always the way I've, I've approached it. That said, there are definitely, you know, there's a short list of characters that I am such a huge fan of that I've never really gotten to tell a story with in a big way. I mean, you know, Conan the Barbarian was on that list, and I got to to check yeah. that one off the last couple of years. Yeah. So yeah, there are definitely other characters at Marvel. You know, a, a few. I mean, I feel like at this point, I've kind of gotten to write <laughs> stories with most everybody, and some, but there's yeah. some I have not really written in, in any significant way, and certainly haven't 
outside of Marvel haven't really written anybody else. But I, you know, I would say an oddball one, which will probably never happen in my life, is I'm a huge Uncle Scrooge fan. I love. Oh yeah, that's the good stuff. I love, especially the the Don Rosa Uncle Scrooge stories. I yeah. think are really incredible. Just great comics. Like regardless of the fact that they're about talking ducks, like they're just really, really good. Beautifully drawn, unbelievable cartooning. Absolutely, I recommend. There's hardcovers out now of all of them from I think from Fantagraphics. Really, really well done books. I recommend them all. But I, I think I would the Uncle Scrooge. I would put on the list. It would probably if I had made a list five years ago, it would have been Conan number one, Uncle Scrooge number two. <laughs> so I've, I've marked off one of those. We'll see if someday I can get the other one. I love that. I mean, that's where the beginning of Indiana Jones comes from. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that's some influential stuff. Uh, while you're in this Thor run, uh, you were releasing creator-owned stuff on Image, Southern uh, Southern Bastards. Yeah. Is uh, this wonderful, hard-boiled, uh, Southern detective action story that mixes, like, college football <laughs> and, and extreme violence... What was it like? Um, where'd that story come from? Because it really feels like if anybody knows anything about you, you know, the kind of spare bio- biographical details that are out there, this feels like something that you have been ruminating on for a while. It comes from your experience in, in a ways maybe that some of your Marvel work maybe doesn't. Yeah, like like I said, I grew up in a small town in, in Alabama, so I grew up with with football. I grew up with you know with religion and football, and I think you can see the theme of faith and religion <clears throat> spread throughout so much of the stuff I've done. Going back to that you know first ten page Wolverine story, through all of mm-hmm. my Thor stuff. Yeah. Um. So I'd never written about football in any significant way until I got to Southern Bastards, and it really. The first idea was I had an when I was doing scalped I had an idea for a crime boss who was a high school football coach that I winded up never using and that was kind of a great springboard I thought for doing a, a you know a deep south uh crime story so it's very much about um you know where I grew up which is kind of a as I've talked about it's a love letter slash you know letter of of rage and anger it's sort of the things you love and that you don't like so much about about where you're from. I love being from a small town. I love being from the South. I still I think I will always think of myself as a Southern writer, even though I've lived outside the South now for um, 20 years, 22 years. Um, so, yeah, I think it's very much that it's the, the um, as Southerners, we don't like it when people from outside the South talk crap about us. We kind of. We only take that from fellow Southerners. So it's me, you know, just trying to pour all that in, in, into one comic. Yeah. And as like, you know, you're such a prolific writer. And like you said, you've been writing ongoings, you've been writing creator owned, you've been writing superheroes. Do you still, you said you never stopped reading comics. So what's like a comic or a story or a piece of art that you kind of always go back to? no matter how far into this journey you are? Oh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think um, certainly lately, you know, after after um, we found out George Perez was sick and then most recently when he passed yeah. away, like I pulled out 
a lot of George Perez comics because they were, mm-hmm. he, as I've talked about, he was the first comic artist whose work I could recognize as a kid. Be like, oh, that's yeah. the Teen Titans guy. Oh, what's this new mm-hmm. book he's doing? Crisis on Infinite Earths. Um, so, so George Perez defined so much of my um, initial understanding and love of comics. And I think even now and probably until the day I die, if I, if you, if I close my eyes and you say, th- you know, picture a comic book page, it's, it's drawn by George Perez um, always and forever. So I've been pulling a lot of that stuff out. Um, you know, I'm, I have a lot of comics like my, I just moved like a year and a half ago, so I just recently had to move them all. So it made me appreciate even more <laughs> how many, just how many long boxes I have accumulated. So I, 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 I love digging into and uh, pulling out lots of old books. I, you know, like I said, there was a lot of stuff from that mid '80s DC period that I loved. Atari Force, kind of forgotten. Mm. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez sci-fi book. Uh, Blue Devil from that same period by mm-hmm. DC was a huge book for me, I, and I think, I think I look at Blue Devil and Blue Beetle and and uh, Excalibur, yeah. the original, original Excalibur. Yeah, I love that Excalibur. The, um, the Giffen De Mateus Justice League, like all those things that were funny and irreverent, but also mm-hmm. you know had real emotion and and weight and well-rounded characters to them. I think those books together define so much of what I love about comics. Um, as a as a fan and a writer, and now well into your career, you've seen you know the industry change from spinner racks to shops to digital and then the, uh you know the resurgence of of the shops um where do you what's what's your take on the way the industry has changed and where do you think it's going i mean that's such a huge question i don't know that i'm qualified to even answer that i mean it's <laughs> i don't know you know i i'm still I, I'm I'm still the same kid who would pluck those books off the spinner rack. I still love going to the comic store and same. and buying books off the shelf. Um, it, it, I, I, the the reason I ask is because you know I think there was a lot of anxiety when digital came up, digital media, uh, and 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 you understand it. But then it seems like, at least anecdotally to me, in the last couple of years. There's been – now people have the choice and, and there's a lot of people coming to comics now. And people are seeking out that community of going into the shop and talking mm-hmm. to the person and getting a pull list and saying, hey, what's good? What are you liking? What are you reading? Um, and that's an, that's something people are willingly doing now. And it's given me a lot of hope and, and I feel great about kind of where the community is because of that. Which is why I asked. Absolutely, you. I I I agree. I mean, I think there was that fear of well, digital is going to you know ruin the brick and mortar stores, and we've seen that's not the yeah. case. I I mean, I have always felt that what whatever stuff, whoever you are, whatever stuff you're into, whatever you like to read, there's a comic out there for you somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you just have to be able to find it. You need to walk into a good shop where they can help direct you to it, or you find it, you know, digitally however you find it, however you get access to it, whatever that book is, I think, you know, we just want to welcome people into comics. Like, please, Mm 
please come find that book. And every time mm-hmm. I go to one of the great comic stores we have across the country, whether it's, you know, Third Eye Comics in, in Maryland or or the Isotope in San Francisco or, or Heroes Aren't Hard to Find in, in Charlotte, um, a, a comic shop in Orlando. Like, these are the shops I go to that it, every time I walk in, I see how – passionate the people who work there are how beautiful the shop is how it's how easy it is to walk in out of the blue never been in a comic shop before don't Mm -hmm. know the secret Mm -hmm. handshake or the lingo don't know anything just looking for something and and it makes me feel good to know those people come in this shop they're in good hands right they're going to be directed to find a book they will enjoy and they will hopefully make them a comic book reader just like you know new teen titans did for me all those years ago. So uh, I still love that. I love that idea of the, the good shops. And like I said, every time I go to them, I'd leave excited to go do new work, you know, excited knowing like those are yeah. the people on the front lines. Those are the people putting books mm-hmm. in the hands of readers. So it just makes me happy to see people who are loving that and doing such a great job of it. Finally, Jason, how are you feeling about, uh, the SEC. How are you feeling about <laughs> SEC football this coming? Well, that's we could do a whole se- separate podcast on that. <laughs> um, Jason has it. He'll, he'll do it. <laughs> I mean, you got you know you got Texas and Oklahoma about to join. You got yeah. you know my my guy Nick Saban uh, infuriating Jimbo Fisher to the point he's and he's, he's firing right. big shots at Jimbo Fisher. I will just say you know the like I get it. I get it. I get why everybody else in the country hates Alabama, despises Nick Saban. <laughs> I probably would too if I wasn't from Alabama, if I wasn't a Crimson Tide fan. <laughs> but it, he is my guy. And <laughs> you don't want that guy pissed off. You don't want him. I mean, every time he sort of looks around at the landscape of college football and says, hey, is this how we want it to be? And everybody says, yes, it is. He says, okay. And then he goes and uses that to win football games. And I feel like this season, this team he's got could be the best team he's ever had, potential to be the best team he's ever had, which I think should frighten and terrify the rest of college football. That's just (laughs) what that man continues to be capable of. Uh, Jason, Aaron, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. (laughs) Thank y'all. This was fun. Thank you to Jason Aaron for speaking with us. And thank you to all of our listeners for the uh, amazing questions. Keep them coming. We love hearing from you. If you want to hear more bonus content, send us an email or drop a review on Apple Podcasts saying you want more X-Ray Vision. We'll do our best to oblige. X-Ray Vision is a Crooked Media production. The show is produced by Chris Lord and Saul Rubin. The show is executive produced by myself and Sandy Gerard. Our editing and sound design is by Vasilis Fotopoulos. Dylan Villanueva and Matt DeGroote provide video production support. Alex Relaford handles social media. Thank you, Brian Vasquez, for our theme music. See you next time.